Thanks as always for having me on, Kevin. I am the Skipper Dude, proud Broncos fan since 1984. So today, I'd like to take what I hope is a final look at the biggest Broncos non-story of 2019. Namely, Joe Flacco's comments last week that he's here to win football games and not here to mentor rookie quarterback Drew Locke. Flacco's now infamous quote was, I hope he does develop, but I don't look at that as my job. My job is to go win football games for this football team. And I really think most of Denver Broncos country is fairly sympathetic to Flacco on a number of fronts. First, it's not his job to mentor up Drew Locke as an NFL quarterback. That responsibility belongs to Rich Gangarello and to quarterbacks coach T.C. McCartney. Second, Flacco's right. It's more than full-time work trying to pick up a new offense and learn a new offensive scheme. He really doesn't have time to be helping Drew Locke develop. And third, as I'll explain in a bit, the guy's human. Elway's move to draft Drew Locke realistically cost Joe Flacco something in the neighborhood of $20 million in all likelihood. And I doubt that Joe Flacco was throwing things at the TV set when the Locke pick was announced, but I think you can be pretty sure that he wasn't pumping his fist and saying yes either. But how do Flacco's comments fit into an historical perspective? Is it typical for noteworthy aging veteran quarterbacks to have a similar reaction? I thought we'd take a look back at three or four similar situations and see. And while these historical comparisons all deal with legendary quarterbacks, and I really don't regard Joe Flacco as anything approaching a legendary quarterback other than his legendary Super Bowl run in 2012, I think they do tell an interesting story. So, let's start with Joe Montana and Steve Young, perhaps the most legendary quarterback mentor story of all time. Montana had won Super Bowls for the 49ers following the 1981 and 84 seasons, but after the missing of the playoffs in, in 85 and 86, the 49ers traded with the Tampa Bay Bucks to get Steve Young in 1987. Young had an entirely different skill set from Montana. He was left-handed, elusive, inaccurate, kind of a high-end Tim Tebow. And Montana, who was a legendary competitor and at least a bit paranoid, didn't take it well. The Montana-Young relationship struggled from day one. So Adam Lazarus, writing in 2012 in a blog called thepostgame.com, really broke down the story pretty well. He, he, he starts by quoting Young. He says, people always think that we fought, Young said years later. We never had a crossword, never had an argument. And I've always said to people that it went as well as it possibly could with two hyper-competitive people. But it wasn't easy. It was difficult, difficult for both of us. It's not that there was bad blood, Montana said in 2011. I guess the only way you can explain it is if you go to work every day in an office. You're, you're not always best friends with the guy sitting next to you. You're friends, but you're not best friends. And while we were friends, we wouldn't hang out together. It had nothing to do with the game or the competitions. It's just our personalities are different. And from, from everything I read, Joe Montana was a little bit more of a party guy. And uh, Steve Young, of course, was a devout Mormon. So at the time, the way in which both Montana and Young spoke about the issue through the press only stirred up more friction. I, I remember in training camp that year, Steve refused to call himself the second string guy, Brent Jones remembered. He even made a quote, and I'm, not, I'm sure this didn't go over well with Joe, but he said, I'm 1B, so there's 1A, Montana, and 1B, Young. During that tra same training camp, Montana attempted to explain his relationship with Young as segregated. Personally, it was amicable. Professionally, that was another matter. We're friends, Steve and I, Montana told Sports Illustrated's Ralph Wiley, but out on the practice field, if he doesn't hate me as much as I hate him, then there's something wrong. 
All right, does this sound like a mentoring relationship to you? There was already an innate discord between the two, an aging, battered legend trying to fend off the advances of a younger, stronger challenger. So Montana's use of the word hate, or Young staking his claim to the starter's job as a 1B, was provocative. Joe is so competitive, and you know players will try to beat each other at tiddlywinks. It was such an affront to him, Young's agent Lee Steinberg remembered. It really put attention, suspicion, distrust into that relationship between Steve and Joe from the start. Steve was like the younger brother who venerated Montana and loved Joe. Joe was a proud, competitive incumbent who didn't want Steve there. So, Joe Montana and Steve Young, no mentoring. All right, so let's look and move on to Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers was drafted by the Packers number 24 overall in 2005. When, when Brett Favre was 35 years old and coming off of a wild card loss to the Vikings, in which he threw four interceptions. In fact, Favre was even floating the idea of retirement after the 2005 season. But when the Packers drafted Aaron Rodgers, Favre's words in the aftermath of that, aftermath of that draft really told you everything you need to know. Favre said my, said, my contract doesn't say I have to get Aaron Rodgers ready to play. Now hopefully he watches me and gets something from that. There is no clause that says you groom the next guy who's going to take your job or else. It doesn't work that way. Now, Favre was known as being a bit arrogant and thin-skinned, but always protected by the Green Bay media who treated him as a sort of demigod. And Rodgers came in a bit cocky himself, like a young know-it-all kid who expected to start for the Packers right away. And Favre and Rodgers formally met for the first time on June 2nd, 2005, for OTAs, and Rodgers made what may have been history's worst introduction by sitting down and saying to Favre, Good morning, Grandpa. Now, Favre was, went stony silence, and so stony silence and did nothing to help Rodgers, and that really set the tone for the relationship. There's even a story from camp that Favre had helped author a little prank where teammates stole Rodgers' helmet and put it on a table for charity items, they convinced Rodgers to sign the helmet with a big, fat, black pin. Of course, Rodgers couldn't find his, you know, his helmet, and somebody from the locker room crew found it and brought it out to him. And he had to go through the entire practice with a helmet that he himself had signed with a big, fat, black pin. It was pretty hilarious, and apparently Rodgers was mortified by the whole thing, almost to the point of tears. Rob Domofsky, who, who covered the Packers for ESPN, asked Rodgers one time whether he had hung out with Favre. Seriously, Rodgers said, I don't even have his number. A friend of Rodgers said, Aaron does not have a kind word to say about Brett, not even slightly kind. He was always a jerk to him. Okay, so we're 0 for 2 on the mentoring front. Okay, so how about John Elway and uh, Tommy Maddox? Now, this one was a little unique in NFL history, as far as I can see, because it really amounted to a temper tantrum and a power play on the part of head coach Dan Reeves. Reeves had drafted Tommy Maddox in 1992 after losing in the AFC Championship game to the Bills following the 1991 season. But at the time, Elway was only 31 years old and still basically in the prime of his career. As it was, of course, Elway would go on to play eight more seasons. But again, the Elway-Maddox relationship was one that never blossomed. In fact, Elway basically used that experience to help explain that Joe Flacco's comments were no big deal. The, the bigger deal really was for the relationship between John Elway and Dan Reeves, which had been poor for many years, but when completely frosty 
after Maddox was drafted and Reeves was fired following the 1992 season. So you can see that, that um, this is a trend to, by, by drafting potential starters in, in late in a, in a player's career is not going to be well received, especially by legendary quarterbacks. And, and depending on who you listen to, even the Tom Brady, Jimmy Garoppolo relationship really wasn't that much better. So bottom line here, Kevin, what you need to understand is that a big time NFL quarterback gives a man just about as high a social status status as a man is capable of having in our modern society. He becomes a pillar of his community, just ask John Elway. And when you combine that with the natural arrogance and the competitiveness that these guys have to have in order to get where they are, it's entirely understandable that they want to be in position late in their careers to go out on their own terms and not to have their heirs apparent brought in before they're ready. Think about this for a minute as it relates to Joe Flacco. He's no dummy. He knows the score as it relates to his career. He has a fully non-guaranteed contract in Denver. Earlier in the summer, the Seahawks were having contract troubles with Russell Wilson. Theoretically, if those negotiations had gone completely sour, the Broncos could have traded for Wilson, signed him longer term, cut Joe Flacco, and the only they only would have been out a fourth-round draft choice. That puts Flacco in a very vulnerable position. Coming into the draft, you know he had to be hoping that he'd be able to earn the last $63 million of his contract here in Denver. Realistically, with no backup quarterback here, he was guaranteed one season, looking really good for a second, and had an outside shot at a third season here. When the Broncos signed Drew Locke, the game changed entirely. Flacco's still looking guaranteed for this season, but you can be pretty sure that Rich Gangarello is going to have Drew Locke basically ready as an NFL starter by the beginning of the 2020 season. Which means that if Joe Flacco takes the Broncos to a 10-6 record and a first-round loss in the playoffs, or anything less than that, Elway and Fangio are probably going to move on and build around Locke in 2020. And regardless of what happens in 2020, Flacco can pretty well kiss his $24 million salary in 2021 goodbye. It won't happen in here in Denver anyway. So realistically, Flacco watched $24 million go up in smoke, possibly even $44 million if he gets cut in 2020 with the Drew Loft draft pick. With that backdrop, were we expecting Flacco to come out and pump his fist for the cameras? Yes! Glad we got that back up. Were, were we expecting him to lie and say that he's just a team guy and he'll do whatever it takes to get Drew Locke ready so the Broncos can jettison his $44 million? Of course not. So really, I applaud Joe Flacco for his honesty. Yeah, he could have avoided a little media frenzy by being more politically correct about his answers, but who cares? I'd rather see the guy tell the truth and let the chips fall where they may. I appreciate the fact that Joe Flacco still regards himself as a Super Bowl-aspiring NFL quarterback and not an overpaid babysitter. Good on you, Joe. Kevin, back to you.